0: Are we a little done with? Uh, I know this is gonna, You're going to hate me for this. Robert
1: De Niro, a little old, right? What are you talking about? The guy's still. Are you kidding? No, not a little. He just had his birthday. Lit- he just turned 78 years old. Yeah, I mean, he's had such a career.
0: It's enough. It's enough with Robert
1: De Niro. No, no, no. That's, that's like people who want Federer to retire. Like, as long as you still got it. Why not? Like, listen, Cody, if you don't want to watch it, what do you care? You don't have to watch his movies. If you've had enough, it's enough he's for still you. You can just go move actor. on. The Irishman was one of his best films. That's a three hour and a half movie, and he's in virtually every scene of the movie. Like, it was incredible, his performance. I would completely agree with you. He has made some bad movies the last decade, no question. He's had some stinkers. Dirty Grandpa, obviously, notably. You know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Has he mailed it in? 100%. But is he still capable of greatness? Yes. And Killers of the Flower Moon will be part of that. And The Irishman was that. Silver Lines Playbook, great film, 2011.
0: I'm doing my Robert De Niro right now impression, just my face. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't sound like him, but
1: the face. I wish people could see Chris's face right now. Robert De Niro, That's the face. Filled with endearing, empathetic performances, Coda tells a fairly conventional coming-of-age story that is no less charming for being familiar. That's from Audrey Fox of We Live Entertainment. That is our featured review this week here, Coda. If you noticed last week that we're doing something a little bit different as far as the way our reviews are coming to you, because honestly, here on Cinephile, we give you a little bit of everything, okay? We give you something new, we give you something old, and then we have a wild card. So the new is, yes. Love a wild card.
0: Love a wild card.
1: The wild card is kind of what makes things really interesting, right, Cody? Because that's unpredictability. That's what we thrive on here on Cinephile. So Apple Plus is a new film called Coda, unlike the film that you thought it was, right, Chris? What was the other Coda you were thinking of?
0: Listen, man, I'm just trying to keep up around here. You said we're talking about a film named Coda. I looked up Coda. First thing that popped up is some 1987 Australian (laughs) made-for-TV horror film. Okay? I'm like, Adnan is getting wacky with these reviews now. I'm like, this will definitely be the wild card. But no, apparently it's our new, and there's a new one coming out. What is it, on Apple Plus?
1: It is on Apple Plus right now. So it was a huge hit at the Sundance Film Festival. It won the Grand Jury Prize, which is the equivalent of winning Best Picture. Apple Plus paid $25 million for it, which is record-breaking to have the film. So, yeah. Go get your streamers, check out Apple+. Plus. As far as the old, so yes, classic films, because you're now listening to this as Labor Day approaches and summer is officially over, what I lament is the great comedies of the past. Normally every summer you'd say, have you seen this comedy? And we don't have that anymore. This year you say, hey, Stillwater was a brilliant award-beating film. Uh, In the Heights, I think, was an excellent musical. You got your kids' movies with Jungle Cruise and Paw Patrol. Where is that great comedy that all of us can go together and watch two times, three times, four times? doesn't exist. So we're going to go back in the time capsule and two great August comedies that I think of every time. There's something about Mary, which actually opened in July, but it hit number one in August. It took a few weeks, and the movie really had legs to use studio movie parlance. And then Superbad, another great August comedy. I could throw in Sausage Party, which I watched at the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, but I'm going to exclude that one. But those are some great August comedies. Like, you think August comedies, Chris, those ones come to mind.
0: Superbad's one of my favorite movies ever. Like, when I think of just good, rated-R comedy, so many memorable lines. Oh, I love it. One of my favorites
1: ever. And then our wild cards. We got something new, something old, and we got a wild card every episode here on Cinephile. The 86 Mets. That's right. Nick Davis is the director, and it's coming. It's a new 30 for 30 on ESPN Films. It is excellent. Four parts Three hours and 20 minutes. I crushed 200 minutes on the 86 Mets, so can't wait to talk to Nick about that. If you're looking for stars and you want star power when it comes to movies, you know, you check out Awards Chatter, my buddy Scott Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. You check out Mark Maron, W2F. But if you want a podcast with authors... Cinephile is the place for you. <laughs> Cinephile 3.0. We are three months in. This is our sixth author, okay? Nick Davis, in addition to being a director, is also an author. His new book is called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Manquist, A Dual Portrait. And yes, there will be some salacious material in there. How about that? Cody, the next time somebody tries to typecast me and go, oh, I know you don't read. You're just a movie guy. No, no I, I've just cranked out six books, okay? I, I'm reading 25 books a year here. Like I, I'm as a prolific a rate of anyone you know as far as reading books.
0: You read way too much, if I can just frankly say it. <laughs> But one of my favorite things about producing for you in this few months that I've been doing it is you like to work blue. I didn't see it coming. No pun intended. And Adnan Verk, you you, you <laughs> I was going to make another... Inappropriate joke. Let's just say. Do in, it, do I'm it. Come on, be inappropriate. Blue. Come on, Cody. I'm enjoying the working blue with Adnan and Virk.
1: Maybe that should be the name of the podcast. I-, I love, there was a great tweet we got. Somebody said that early on Dan referred to Adnan, I think it was in the South Beach sessions, as fundamentally decent. And then you listen to this podcast, every single time burke has a chance to be <laughs> fundamentally indecent, he is taking that opening. Trust me, it's going to be entertaining what's coming up. Uh, let's start off with Coda. So, Coda is one of those movies, Chris, you say to yourself, oh man. It's the kind of movie David Sampson's going to love, which is to say somebody who thinks they know movies is going to love it. And it's got rave reviews everywhere. And I'm here to tell you, stop. Please just stop, okay? Just because a movie is well-meaning and has its heart in the right place and is something different doesn't mean it's not following the same old formula and ultimately it's a disappointment. Yeah, I said it, okay? Here's what is good about the film. CODA stands for Children of Deaf Adults. And you rarely see a lot of films about deaf people. Sound of Metal, which was my number one film of last year, The Great Riz Ahmed was incredible in the film, should have won the Oscar, was nominated for Best Actor, lost to Anthony Hopkins for The Father, another great film, though. He gave a rare performance. That That is obviously an actor who is hearing playing a deaf actor. CODA is amazing for the fact that it actually has... Deaf adults in the major rules. This is why it was a perfect as a Sundance movie. The Sundance Film Festival is all about independent films and, and Robert Redford is championed these movies. And Troy Kotzer plays the dad is actually a deaf working actor. Apparently, does a great job on Broadway. Leo, Daniel Durant, also a deaf actor. Marley Matlin, you know her name, right? She won an Academy Award, Children of a Lesser God, way back in 1986. Uh, she is also in the film Playing the Mom. Now there's one character who can hear. That's Ruby Rossi, the young woman. That's Amelia Jones. So how about this concept? You have got deaf parents, a deaf brother, and then the one kid can hear. It's based loosely in the 2014 French film, La Famille Bélier. And honestly, it's an interesting concept. Just imagine if Chris Cody could hear and your parents were deaf. Imagine if I could hear and my parents were deaf. Interesting concept, right? But ultimately the movie is so force-fed and ends up being so sentimental. Let me tell you the story and you're gonna to say to yourself, I've heard this story a billion times. It's about a kid who wants to break free of her family. Her family, because of poor economic means, expects her to be a part of their community. They have a fishing boat. It's not doing particularly well. She's critical because on the boat, they can't hear when there's rival boats or rival signals and such. So the fact that she can speak sign language, she's fluent, uh, it's so critical to them. But she wants to break free. She has a dream. She's a singer. By the way, how predictable is that? So children of a deaf adult, what's her pure gift? It's singing. Oh, so her great musical (laughs) gift is something the parents can never fully appreciate, which gives us one of the most cliched scenes ever, you know there's a finale coming where she's gonna give a big show-stopping sequence and the parents can't hear a thing. So the way that they're recognizing how good their daughter is is by looking around the rest of the crowd. That scene is actually unique because at one point the director mutes the volume and you're seeing it through the dad's eyes. So he's looking around just watching the parents. Oh, they seem to be liking it. They seem to be emotional. Okay, I think my daughter's crushing it. Where the movie jumps way over the shark is later on he asks her through sign language, hey, do the song for me. And she starts singing it and he's saying through sign language louder. And I'm like, you can't hear a thing. This is a preposterous scene. It's, it's so ridiculous. So listen... It's one of those movies, again, it has its heart in the right place. I wish we saw more movies about deaf adults. Absolutely. I I wish that there's more films about the hearing-impaired community. The fact that Apple Plus paid $25 million, okay, great. Maybe we'll see more films like this. But can we see more films about these people that are not as gooey and as sentimental and as predictable? It's following a very familiar playbook, and i got to be honest with you. Considering the hype, I thought the noise was not as deafening as I was expecting. I'm giving this two Maple Leafs for CODA
0: coming-of-age tale, right? I mean, I feel like it's one of those things, it's like, how many of these do we need? I mean, the deaf aspect, oh. though, that is interesting. Like, like Right.
1: That's the wrinkle to go, Okay, I haven't seen this before. This is interesting. But girl trying to break through from family, aspires to be a singer, doesn't have the economic means. Maybe she'll get a scholarship. Oh, she's just to crush it at this prestigious Juilliard-type school. And then the big finale. Oh, here's the big song coming. And will she leave her family to follow her dreams? Will she? Will she, Lassie? Will she follow her dreams? I'm like, come on. I, I, I'm amazed even at people who are like, this is one of the best films of the year. If this is one of the best films of the year, we're in trouble. Okay, this is a bad <laughs> year for movies then. What if this
0: is, Annan? Is this a good year so far for movies? How would you assess this no, year? No, it's been movies? a bad...
1: I just told you, there's been two great movies, Stillwater and In the Heights. That's it. We're into September, for God's sakes. All the great movies are going to come in the last... Think about that. Eight months, two good movies. We're running at a ratio of one great film for every four months. So... God, September, October, November, December. Give us James Bond. Give us Dune. Give us all these other films that are coming out because we're, we're definitely in trouble when it comes to the movies. By the way, there's one... How about this from the stock character? You're going to have an ethnic guy who plays the teacher, Mr. Villalobos, played by Eugenio Derbez, a triple threat superstar in Mexico. He ups the wattage of the... You know, you, you know he's got to be quirky, right? Can't just be a normal music teacher. Give be this Mexican guy, kind of weird. He's talking about his latte with a special kind of nut milk. I mean, it was... It was oh. I do like almond milk. I <laughs> could you imagine someone listening because you know what i wasn't going to watch coda but the mention of the milk the fact that cody mentioned there's almond milk maybe i'm going to like this you know you over the underdog edge. story david versus goliath i will tell you a couple of things were interesting though dad is very crusty he's also flatulent like at one point he says do you know why a fart smells so bad he's like because you know god wants even deaf people to smell them i mean it's unbelievable if the guy's just just dropping farts everywhere also very horny Like, at one point, there's a scene where the daughter goes in like, oh, my God, her her would-be boyfriend catches her parents copulating. And she's like, oh, my—and the dad's like, listen, through sign language again, he's saying, do you blame me? Look how hot your mom is. What do you expect me to do?
0: A horny dad that farts a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, don't be surprised if he gets Academy Award recognition just for those things. Horny dad that farts a lot, but he's just trying to listen to Ruby, you know, the blue-collar patriarch. I'm, I'm, I'm
0: actually doing this right now, like, and another producer from Levitard Show, Winningham, is just kind of like not listening to you, but only can hear the random things I'm saying, and he just his head went up when I was like a horny dad who farts. <laughs> <laughs> what
1: is happening? <laughs> now listen, Whitty is great. Witty sent us a very random tweet saying, "I love the job yes the Cinephile is doing." So that is very class work there from Chris Winningham. Make sure you tell him I said thank you. He's a good man. Uh, by the way, another great tweet we had. Somebody summarized last week's episode, and <laughs> all they wrote was Muhammad Ali wiretaps, Polish impotence. Can I just say I love this audience?
0: I, mean, I got a good news story. I found a good news story that I like here. Martin Scorsese is getting a little taste of his own medicine. All right. His daughter. Now, back when he was promoting The Irishman in 2019, apparently, what did he say? He said Marvel movies are not
1: cinema. That's and correct. He, he equated them in the theme parks. I loved his comments. And now, and she, <laughs> yeah, no, he, he absolutely buried the fact there's way too many crappy Marvel movies. I loved it. Go the ahead. funny
0: thing is, is he's not enter- entirely wrong, but his daughter, correct, his daughter, yeah. obviously a young woman. <laughs> Came after him of all places on TikTok. Now, I'm pretty sure that there's no way Martin Scorsese is on TikTok. So I I would imagine there's a chance he hasn't even seen this. You know, the news is popping up and he's, you know, his people are like, hey, your daughter's talking shit about you. And that's, I'm sure, how he learned of this, right? There's no way Martin Scorsese is on TikTok.
1: Uh, no, she's not. I've definitely seen, I've definitely seen uh, her Instagram, which I follow just to see him. So she pops up a lot of pictures of him. And I think I follow his Instagram, which is again, she's clearly doing it like she just takes a picture of her dad on a boat. at some random thing. I, but TikTok, there's no way. I
0: respect someone who doesn't let their dad just say whatever they want. You call your dad out when they say ridiculous things. These old people, you know, maybe this is just me with my biases and my dad. People often get say that I'm mean to my dad. No, 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 no. Sure. If, 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 who's going to check these people if their kids aren't? That's what kids are meant to do. Check your parents. Martin Scorsese said something, even though it's true, it's a little dismissive. So his daughter, <laughs> okay. young, Gen Z, I don't even know what she is. She said she him straight, and I like it.
1: Yeah, what she did was, she had a video, and the on-screen text was, My dad, Marvelous Cinema. She's lip-syncing to Rihanna's demo of a Selena Gomez song, Same Old Love. The lyrics coincide perfectly with the whole ordeal. Take away your things and go. You take, can't take back what you said I know. I've heard it all before at least a million times. Now, Francesca loves her dad. She's always posting with her dad. She says how people are like intimidated by him. She's like, listen, he's just a sweet old man. He's not intimidating at all, even though his films.
0: Good job, Francesca. Right?
1: But I think it's brutal that she did that. Like, i got to be completely honest. I couldn't disagree with you more. First of all, his comments were right. I mean, he said Marvel is not... Cinema. He's right. In, in his categorization of cinema, it is storytelling and something bold and genuine and unique. And this is like theme parks, which it sounds dismissive. And I get what you're saying. It, it definitely was condescending. I'll give you that. But he's right. Like it's, it's just mass market produced movies. It does not, at least in his mind, does not equate to cinema. I, is that true? Like, at least in his mind. It's I not just movies. love
0: the idea of him responding on TikTok, making a TikTok <laughs> dance, Martin Scorsese, <laughs> some dance that just sends a message to his daughter. I don't know. I just love the idea. Any right. story that has Martin Scorsese and TikTok in it i'm gonna read that story
1: well uh, I'm, I'm with you on that and the fact that he's currently working on killers of the flower moon hard at work two of his most frequent collaborators robert de niro and leonardo DiCaprio. and before he gets to shooting this epic film oh wait uh marty yeah, francesca's got something for you <laughs> what's that did she call me or no it's on tiktok yeah. do you want to uh no i'll, I'll get to We're it later gonna, you, it, you okay. respond on
0: tiktok later okay marty yeah
1: uh, okay yeah i'll get to that in a second just uh action okay
0: are we are we a little done with uh i know this is good you're gonna hate me for this robert de niro A little old, right? What are you talking about? The guy's still... Are you kidding? No, not a
1: little... He just had his birthday. He just turned 78 years old. I
0: I mean, he's had such a career. It's enough. It's enough with Robert. No,
1: no, no. That's that's like people who want Federer to retire. Like, as long as you still got it... Why not? Like, listen, Cody, if you don't want to watch it, what do you care? You don't have to watch his movies. If you've had enough, it's enough for you. You can just go move
0: on. He's still crushing it. Yeah.
1: The Irishman was one of his best films. That's a three-hour and a half movie, and he's in virtually every scene of the movie. Like, it was incredible, his performance. I would completely agree with you. He has made some bad movies the last decade. No question. He's had some stinkers. Dirty Grandpa, obviously, notably, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Has he mailed it in? 100%. But is he still capable of greatness? Yes. (laughs) And Killers of the Flower Moon will be part of that. And The Irishman was that. Silver likes Playbook, great film, 2011.
0: I'm doing my Robert De Niro right now impression, just my face. Like, it doesn't, doesn't sound like him, but see the
1: face. I wish people could see Chris's face right now. Robert De Niro, that's the face. We'll get to Nick Davis here in just a second. But as I said off the top, I lament the fact we missed the great comedies of the past. When I think of August, I think of the summer. Great comedies, right? The hangover, Ghostbusters, you name it. So you know what? Let's give it a little love to There's Something About Mary, which I think is one of the great comedies of the last 25 years. Came out back in the late 90s. Stars Ben Stiller. You got Cameron Diaz. These guys were on the cusp, Chris, becoming superstars, you know, and Matt Dillon's really funny. I think what works about there's something about Mary is it's got the crassness, it's got the vulgarity. I mean, for God's sakes, the movie was known for the Fact they use semen as hair gel, and the fact there's a close of one of Ben Stiller's testicles. We got a bleeder. It has that stuff, but it actually has some real genuine sweetness. There is actually a nice romance here in this movie. Everyone does fall in love with Cameron Diaz. She's so beautiful and so charming and so seductive, and seems like the girl next door. That of course all these guys would be crazy about her. And the Fairley brothers, this was apex for them. Peter Fairley later, of course, won an Academy Award working with Green Book, but. Like, this was like Fairly Brothers comedy where, again, crass, vulgar, but actually sweet. You've got to sing along here. Like, the fact there's a band throughout the movie, they would always use people who had special needs, but showed the fact that they could be malicious and bad, and the fact that the guy with the bad legs is like, like the crippled guy is clearly a horrible person. He's using his, uh, you know, disability for nefarious reasons. Uh, the fact Cameron Diaz is his brother, he's got mental issues, and the fact that they don't make fun of him, like, he's just there. Has anyone seen my baseball? Has anyone seen my wiener? I mean, there, there's so much that's wrong with something about Mary, and so much of it works. I think it's a genuinely charming, funny movie. And we haven't even talked about Brett Favre.
0: That is what I think of. You say to me, What do you think of something about Mary? I think of semen in the hair, <laughs> Ben Stiller zipping up his balls, and Brett Favre acting terribly. Like that is what I think of when I think of something about Mary. And I think it's interesting. That that's a rare movie where they they put they play. You mentioned it, the band playing yeah. like the intro music, but you see them playing it. I've always been intrigued by that. I don't know why movies don't use that more.
1: Yeah, I just like that. I agree, it was very unique, and I love Matt Dillon. I mean, the fact he's got that pencil mustache Great. and those teeth, oh. the hat—like this guy is just a brutal, slimy, scummy and guy. And that
0: guy, I forget his name, the actor, the guy who's very intimidated Chris by Mary. Yes, that guy. Oh. I love that guy in the movie too. Chris
1: Elliott's Woogie, whatever the hell his name is, he's got all the zits yes. and stuff coming. I'm like, Oh yes. my god, he is just an absolute disaster. But you're right. Great comic energy from Chris Elliott. Both of these movies, because we're about to do super bad as well,
0: a lot of good performances in these movies.
1: Yeah. Let's do a couple minutes on Superbad. Again, you're a bigger fan than I. I like it a lot. But oh. the fact you said it's one of your all-time favorites, what I love about it is McLovin. I just think McLovin is such, again, mm-hmm. an endearing, unique, original character, along with the fact, of course, this is fat Jonah Hill when he was really genuinely funny. You know, oh. Judd Apatow production, the fact that these guys were really kind of hitting the whole idea of adolescence comedies and the drugs and the boozy, all that's there. But McLovin, to me, is what sets the movie apart.
0: I don't know. Michael Cera. Cera's amazing. In that yeah. movie. I love the buddy cop, Bill Hader, Seth Rogen. I mean, like I said, Emma Stone. I'm pretty, is this her coming out party, Emma Stone? I think Stone? so, like, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Like I said, there's a lot. Joe Latruglio. Do you know this guy, this actor? He's yeah, yeah. It, he's, he's the creepy guy who's like, you guys on MySpace or what? Like the guy with the, I'm telling <laughs> yes, you. That, yes. I'm telling you. There's so many one-liners in this two, movie, too. Jonah Hill. I'll just, I'll just go fuck myself. Like, people don't forget with the guy, with the kid. Like, I'm telling I could just go on for days just spitting out random lines. I love it.
1: And I think it's underrated in some ways, right? Like, I think it's most people— not even people- a
0: first name. It just says McLovin. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, like, I just keep yeah. In
1: terms of great quotable comedies, it's got to be, like, top ten, right? It's amazing.
0: And Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg wrote that when they were, like, teenagers. Yes. Like, everything in the movie, there's, like, a scene where someone's dancing with a woman and you get period blood on— the, the pants that apparently really happened to a friend of Seth Rogen when he was growing up oh. so I mean like the, a lot of this stuff is like real stuff that happened to them just a classic man anytime Superbad's on I watch it
1: great comedies there's something about Mary Superbad if you haven't seen them check them out
0: alright Adnan this is a weird one there's a movie being made with Will Smith's production company the Chainsmokers which have a production company I'm learning I mean this is Whew. and NASCAR yeah. I mean, did, did we just pick three random things from the world, and we're like, let's put these three things together and have them make a movie together?
1: Yeah, th- this sounds like Kill Mary. Fuck, right? like, right? it's one all these like random games are like, great. Right, let's put three things together. Okay, Will Smith, chain smokers, NASCAR makes absolutely zero sense. That's
0: actually not a terrible idea to like just have random movie ideas. Like, you want original movies? Just take three random things from pop culture and throw them
1: together and make a movie. <laughs> the th- story is ridiculous. The film following Lila, an ambitious sports agent, loses her superstar client for the start of the NASCAR season decides to take a chance on a rebellious female dirt track star, 17-year-old Piper Kite. With her career in the line, Lila's challenge is only one if she can also reform Piper's reclusive father. I'm assuming this is Will Smith. No, it's not, actually. Matthew Kite, a former NASCAR champion who walked away from the sport, hasn't been seen in four years. If he was the recluse, Chris, I'm in. But no, no, he's the only producer. No plans to start on the film. He just wants to be part of the sizzle reel. Like, who wants to see a bunch of good old boys, a bunch of rednecks from North Carolina with some electronic synth music from the I mean, Chainsmokers? you kind of
0: reached the point where if Will Smith's in your movie, it's not that good of a movie. So uh, him being a producer <laughs> may be to play here. But, uh... This is—I mean—I'm intrigued by this. It's not a terrible <laughs> premise for a movie. I'm just still blown away by why the Chainsmokers are here. Like, I know that they have some connection to NASCAR. I've read that they've performed at a bunch of races, but I'm just confused here. But like I said, I kind of—I'm digging it.
1: Chainsmokers, right? You hear them all like, pop hits. You like hear them all t- electronic music, whatever. I'm like, yeah, like they're not bad. I- I'm with you. I, I wouldn't think the smoker if you see the music of the Chainsmokers, okay, sure. The fact they have a production company, a little surprising. Oh, yeah. I like the title, Kick the Habit yeah. Productions.
0: I'm, uh, there's another movie coming out. It's involving Pop Tarts. Justin Bieber and Robert De Niro oddly enough it's a weird one that's not true (laughs) hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today your savings
2: are waiting
1: Well, it's a real pleasure to bring in Nick Davis. He is, as prolific as it comes, a producer, writer, and director. He's got a tremendous documentary about the New York Mets, which is coming 30 for 30, two parts, September 14th, September 15th on ESPN. And he's got a great book called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Manquitz: A Dual Portrait. How about this coincidence coming out on September 14th? Author, writer, director. Nick, you're quite busy. Good to see you, man. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Good to see you, Adnan. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing great. Uh, let's dive into the Mets. I love the documentary. And this analogy isn't going to fit, but go with me. Whenever I watch the 86 Mets stuff, I think of the movie Platoon. Because what happens is I think about Willem Dafoe as one leader, and I think of Tom Berenger as another leader. And Gary, ah. right? and Gary Carr is the one leader you know, devout Christian, saint-like, energetic, rubs some of the guys the wrong way, a little bit, you know, as, as Keith Hernandez said, loves the curtain calls, Cameron Carter. Now it doesn't quite work, so of course Willem Dafoe smokes dope and Gary Carter wouldn't do that, but work with me. And then Tom Berenger, right, evil, dark, intense, does drugs. Okay, Keith Hernandez did cocaine in the past, definitely intense, you know, dark side. Love it. Love it. I I don't know if that totally works, but when I'm watching it, I kept thinking (laughs) to myself, what a great companion piece. 86 Mets and Platoon came out in 1986. Let's start with the leadership of Carter and Hernandez, which was so critical to that team.
3: Well, that's fantastic. I I had never considered that, uh, but that's terrific. And we did interview Oliver Stone for the film because – He came back from Platoon into New York City in the summer of 86 and he saw what was going on and he wrote Wall Street and wrote the immortal line, greed is good, uh, which sort of exemplified that era. Uh, Yeah, it's terrific. I, I think the leadership of that team at the time uh, there was this sort of yin and yang. There was Hernandez, the dark leader. And, you know, I, I've often thought of them as the sort of Lennon and McCartney of the of the team. Right. But I love the platoon thing, especially because Defoe, sadly, uh, or his character died. Right. Carter's the only one, ironically, of the 86 Mets who is not with us anymore. And he was obviously the, the you know, lived the cleanest uh, life of any of them. Um, but I think that they they were sort of two poles, you know, the the good optimistic, cheerful, go get him, rah-rah of, of Carter, and then the dark, intelligent, cerebral intensity of Hernandez. Uh, and they needed both uh, to make it work, I think.
1: Yeah, I love the fact that even though Keith is clearly annoyed by him, that they were like, you know, oil and water, the fact he was like, oh, Carter loved the, the curtain calls, but he goes, listen, Gary was always icing his knees an hour before. I love the fact, that's a great story, in the 86, obviously the World Series, Game 6, after Carter got the scored the run, immediately started putting the knee pads on, like, buckle up, let's go to work like his intensity was there. Dijkstra tells a great story when he woke up Gary in his hotel room and Carter was clearly not pleased by that. So even though he has a, a huge heart and was a wonderful guy, he was a competitor. He wanted to win as much as anybody. The best story but Yeah the- he was
3: very tough. Yes. He was a super tough guy. He was not sort of milk toast, you know, Pollyanna-ish, just totally happy. Right. He he was very very intense and it bothered him that he'd never won in montreal and he came to the mets and as keith says all he really wanted to do was win
1: yeah, the best story of the two of those guys together in terms of, like, leadership, I don't know how you got the B-roll. It may have just been random. But Keith is telling the story, I think, that Carter was giving the pitcher a pep talk, walks away, and Keith goes, yeah, fuck all that. Just throw the fastball.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, it's amazing. And and the announcer, Joe Garagiola, comes on and says, you know, uh, Hernandez working Hernandez. Uh, Hernandez, I mean, you know, Carter working Hernandez like a symphony right. orchestra. And Sid then comes on and says, I, you know, for me, it was Keith. Right. He listened to Keith, they all really listened to Keith. Carter was like the leader sort of for the public, right. but I think internally it was much more Hernandez. And then as Bobby Ojeda points out, Ray Knight. yeah, Ray Knight was the glue that really held that team together.
1: Uh, a Great story is that game six, of course, no one forgets now because the World Series is so epic, but that NLCS 16 inning game, and the fact that Keith Hernandez told Jesse Orozco, if you throw a fastball, we're going to fight. Like, he like I'm going to kick your ass right in the mouth. Yeah. Ended up being three great sliders. They won that game. But honestly, Nick, Mike Scott was like Jaws, right? I remember that it was like, they cannot face Mike Scott again. He is scuffing the crap out of this ball. If they lose this game, they're going to get shut out in game seven. That's why that game had such drama to it, because they
3: didn't want to face Mike Scott. Yeah, it was such intensity because, you know, to a man, they told me, like, they, they really they, – they couldn't hit him. They couldn't beat him. And I think as fans at the time, we were like, yeah, we'll figure out a way. But they felt like, we, we can't get this guy. And so I think for them it was, you know, such intensity as inning went by. You know, it was like, we have to win this game.
1: Why wouldn't MLB yeah. take it seriously? Because they, they said they had literally proof of scuffed baseballs. Like, that, that's amazing, but they actually had proof. And yet Peter Uberoff was t- turning a blind eye. Everyone knew he was cheating.
3: Yeah, everyone did know he was cheating. But I think they just felt like, look, you know, what are they going to do? Replay game four? Like, they didn't get the balls to the league office until the next day. Oh, okay. And it was sort of like, you know, what are you going to do? Right. He says he doesn't do it. We don't have uh, video proof. And, you know. Right.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Uh, once again, we're talking to Nick Davis, the new documentary, 30 for 30 in the Mets, executive produced by Jimmy Kimmel, September 14th, 15th. I love Dwight Gooden. I, when I see him, I have so many different emotions. I think, God, he was incredible in 84 85. I think of sadness and tragedy and all the stuff he's been through in the drugs. I also am proud of him because the fact he did come back, he won 193 ball games. He's still kicking, as you said. He, it's not like drug addiction has caught him yet. He's a, he's a survivor, as is Daryl Strawberry. But I tell you, that story that he said, you know, when, when they won, he said it was the best day and the worst day. Day of my life in a four-hour span. We went from winning the World Series to me calling my drug dealer, and he's in Long Island, thinking he's with a bunch of friends, high as a kite, and he missed the parade. I mean, that is such a sobering account of one of the great stars yeah. in the sport.
3: Yeah, it, you, if you think about the power of addiction, what that must be like to be so far gone that you're sitting in a, a crack house, watching on TV your teammates celebrating without you. And he says, "That's when I sobered up, and I realized like." I blew it. Like you can't, you you know, you can't go back. You can't do it again, but the parade's over and yeah, it's heartbreaking. Uh, And he's so open about it. It's really terrific and very, very relatable. I think um, he's he's
1: a tremendous guy. I, I, I did not know that story. Ray Knight told about Peter brought telling him, "Hey, listen, you've got a young black superstar in your team who's got a serious drug problem." And then he went to Daryl, and Daryl goes, "No, it's Doc." And Daryl denied it, said, "No, I never said that. I just said it's not me." And hello, deductive right. reasoning. If it's not me, it's obviously Doc.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, what's crazy is that well, why Uberoth is playing this kind of coy game. Like, I'm not going to tell you who it is, <laughs> right. but it's one of two guys. It's like, why you just tell him, you know? Yeah. But um, you know, so yeah, it's uh, it's tremendous to get to know these guys and and find out what was really going on behind the scenes. Back
1: to Keith, the family dynamic was amazing. His dad clearly loved him, hard charging, but nothing was ever good enough. Eleven time Gold Glover, five time All Star, MVP. And there was months Keith wouldn't talk to him. I got emotional when Keith told the story about his brother being there. And it was, I, I, it was really sweet the way he was like, you know, my brother was there for me. And Gary was like, come on, man, let's go. Like he, he almost like he felt that inspiration from his brother. He felt like he got that hit in that game against the Astros because of his brother. And it's kind of sad, that the relationship with his dad. It's like his dad really loved him, was genuine. But as Keith kind of gives that shrug, like, you know, he died before we had a chance to really reconcile properly. That was tough.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a tough relationship. It's a complex relationship, and I think you know Keith brings up fear strikes out like yeah. you know that that was the the model for him was this domineering father who clearly loved him, mm-hmm. but like you know if you listen to me, you would hit three twenty five <laughs> rather than three eleven. You know, it's like come on, Dad. like I I an MVP. I'm a you know whatever it is, eleven time All Star. like get your right. Gold Glove. Give me a break, right. you know. Um, and then as you say, like sadly, you know the the year Keith retired. Uh, his dad got cancer and passed away and they never got a chance to kind of just be guys together. It was always all about Keith's career.
1: Lenny Dykstra is quite a beautiful mess, isn't he? I mean, at one point he has a line, I'll walk around the 15-inch cock. I mean, it's clearly mumbling at some point. I don't know if it's you're the one telling him, he's talking about famous explorers and you say, Columbus? He's like, yeah, 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 that guy. <laughs> did, did, did you have any sort of hesitation, like as a producer, director, you're like, all right, how much do I use of Lenny? Because it is entertaining and he is notable. He's very important to the team. And how much of it are people going to be laughing at Lenny Dykstra and what's become of him?
3: I don't think they're going to laugh at him I think they're going to laugh with him I think Lenny Dykstra is crazy like a fox I I feel like he plays the role of wild man to a T he knows what he's doing and he was very honest about his struggles and I think at the end of the film in the fourth part he says like uh, you know his life has not turned out the way he might have wanted but at the end of the day like he gets to say he won a world series in New York City and that's something not a lot of people get to say um, I, I think Lenny is amazing. I think people are gonna. I mean, he's tremendously entertaining, yes. and and is, uh, you know, you, you can't turn him off. It, to me, he began the interview with five minutes of completely <laughs> unprintable stuff that we could never have used. But I've rarely laughed so hard. And I felt like, oh my God, this guy is Lenny Bruce. And by the end, I felt like he was Marlon Brando in all the boxes, Like lamenting what could have been. I love those references. Heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. Could have been a contender. Um, Let's get to game six. Amazing stuff here. You got Howard Bryant saying you knew it was going to be an epic collapse once the run scored. Uh, Bud Harrelson, the third base, could say he's known for bouncing it when it came to Stanley. Uh, The fact that Ray Knight said, I didn't bend my knees. I thought I would hurt my lower back. I did, but there was such elation. 16 separate pitches could have ended the World Series. Um, I I love the video just because of movie guy. that movie, Mookie Steady came after the hit. That was
3: like... uh, uh, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's a handheld shot, and no one's ever seen it. I mean, I, I think they've seen little bits of it, but like picking him up at the mound, Mookie, for some reason, rounded first, ran on to second after the ball goes into right field, like game's over. And he said like, I don't know what I was doing, but he just ran over the, you know, the guy, the, the cameraman ran out and just followed him all the way. This long shot from the mound into the dugout and then down the dugout steps into the club, down the tunnel towards the clubhouse. It's a beautiful shot and a, and a great moment, like, to be with Mookie Wilson. You see the policemen yeah. clapping him on the back and stuff. It's like New York, the essence of 1986.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, I've never seen that before, so I'm glad you pointed out. That it's never before seen it. If you're a Met team, you're going to, this documentary is worth it just for that shot alone after one of the great moments ever in baseball history Mookie, the way the camera falls in was great. Um... The funniest is Bud Bill Burr, the comedian, the Red Sox fan, is incredible. His two quotes after the Kevin Mitchell hit, for fuck's sakes, pull him. And when Bob (laughs) Stanley came out, he goes, he's got no shoulders. Looks like a fucking beanbag. That's our closer. How great was Bill Burr?
3: Bill Burr was amazing. And that is one of the joys of having Jimmy Kimmel as your executive producer, right. because you're like, hey, Bill Burr is a huge Red Sox fan. Today. Jimmy, <laughs> do you happen to, he's like, yeah, you know, and the next thing you know, I'm talking to Bill Burr <laughs> remotely from this office when he's in L.A. Uh, but it was an amazing interview. He made me laugh really well.
1: Uh, you mentioned as far as celebrities, you get Oliver Stone. You also have George R.R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones.
3: How did you get him? Well, he's a huge Mets fan. And I think that there's a certain kind of Mets fan. He actually said a great bite that we weren't able to use. He said, for my sins, I am a Mets fan. (laughs) Uh, There's a certain kind of Mets fan who, like, they'll do anything if the Mets are involved. So, like, he jumped, he was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. And, you know, we sent, you know, a a one-man band, you know, cameraman guy out to, you know, his uh, hideaway in the mountains someplace. We're not supposed to know where he is, George R.R. Martin, he's such a hideaway. But, uh, yeah, we had terrific, uh, terrific celebrities who wanted to do this. John McEnroe, Mike Tyson, Cindy Lauper, really fun uh, group of people, in addition, of course, to the players and then writers who were talking us through that time. And what you do
1: an amazing job of, really, is not just focusing on the Mets and getting all the baseball stuff right, but New York at that time, a time of excess, the drugs, the partying, why that team was so likable. This is a team of a bunch of cads, Nick, and yet people love them. They found them so endearing.
3: Well, I think that what it was was that team captured that time and place so perfectly. You don't ordinarily think of a sports team merging with its city and its time quite as perfectly as those guys captured the mid-80s in New York City. And, you know, it didn't last long. You know, the next uh, fall, Terry Pendleton hits the back-breaking home run. And three weeks later, the stock market crashes. And that's it for the go-go 80s and the dynasty that never was. It was like they lived fast. And you know, a lot of people are like, God, wasn't this so disappointing that they didn't have more of a dynasty and didn't win more than once. To me, once you spend time with these guys and find out what it was really like, it's a miracle <laughs> that they won one.
1: The image of Lenny Dykstra, tobacco juice dripping down. I love uh, Jeff Perlman, by the way. Perlman's one of the all-time greats. His, his book is he great. Is great. And he's got such his great stories. His book story. is great. He's got great yeah, stories in there as well. Uh, once again, you can catch the Mets documentary September 14th and 15th. It's to be on ESPN. The book, Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Manquitz, a dual portrait by Nick Davis, is coming out September 14th. It is fantastic. Let's dive in first to Herman. Uh, who, if you want a little... He would have fit in well with the 86 Mets, I think, with his sense of humor. How about this? When he was in Pennsylvania working with the miners, he had one of his favorite dirty jokes. A young girl walking down the street approached by a man who tells her, you have a hair on your lollipop. I should have, the girl replies. I'm 15 years old. Later on, there's a story (laughs) involving Joe in which he's trying to get married, and... You know he's trying to get advice here from Herman, and Herman says to him, because this is dealing with like simple anti-Semitism. Herman advised Joe to tell his mother-in-law to be that he'd happily reattach his foreskin if that would help ease her conscience on the matter. This is a guy who, despite his peccadillos, was beloved in Hollywood when he won the Oscar for Citizen Kane. People were like, "Mank, Mank, why do you think he was such a lovable guy despite the fact he was awfully crass?"
3: Well, I think Herman was my grandfather. And so I, of course, love him, uh, even though he died 12 years before I was born. Uh, But I grew up knowing about this just lovable, warm hearted, big hearted mess of a guy. (laughs) Sloppy, self-destructive, didn't didn't respect the work that he was doing and that he was so good at, but felt like he was doing it with one arm tied behind his back because his real work was something else. What that something else was, we'll never know. Um, but, you know, a lot of the early screenwriters in Hollywood felt that way. They felt like movies are a bastard art form and we should be writing novels or doing plays or let's get back to the East Coast where the action is. And um, I, I don't know what made him so lovable, except that I think he had a tremendous heart and a tremendous soul. And then his brother, eleven and a half and a half years younger, Joe, was a different story.
1: Yeah. And that's the perfect way to get into Joe, because... This is a guy who, again, I know about the great films, multi-academy award winner, but how about this story? In the mid-1960s, watching his son Tom navigate through Hollywood's social world as a young man, Joe gave him a piece of paternal advice on dating actresses. The crassness of this council would echo through the decades and contribute to Joe's poor reputation in my own nuclear family. Never fuck a starlet, Joe told Tom, when you can fuck a star. How was he viewed within your
3: family? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's how he was viewed. He was viewed as like, this is a a really ambitious guy. He's really cold and kind of nasty. And, um, you know, when I grew up, I, I just, I never saw him. We never had anything to do with him. And then when I finally met him as a young adult, I was like, this guy's fine, you know, he was, at that point he was 80 and he saw, mellowed, his third wife was wonderful and he had a very happy, you know, final 20 years of his domestic life, mm-hmm. professionally no. But um, but I thought, God, this guy's such a mensch. And then I started hearing all these stories <laughs> And you start to wonder like, where did this all come from? And what was he like as a kid? And that's what um, I hope, you know, the book investigates is like, was he always such a monster? I mean, there's another story in the book where one of his sons is told by Joe's sister, like, it's so sad what happened to your dad because he became such a monster. And he thought, what do you mean he became such a monster? Was there a time (laughs) when he wasn't a monster? So, you know, it's, it's a complicated uh, legacy, to be
1: sure. And speaking of complicated, that's a perfect description of Herman. And, of course, everyone loves the movie Mank, David Fincher's film, which gets to the heart of Citizen Kane, and the fact that Herman Mankiewicz didn't get nearly enough love and recognition for it. Uh, listen, he was a drunkard. We all get that. The gambling was an issue. But he also, I love that you pointed out his contribution as a film, Wizard of Oz. He had that idea to go from black and white to color, which, along with Rosebud, as you point out, those are like two of the great inventions ever in movies. And how about this line about Orson Welles? People forget what a colossally handsome man the young Orson Welles was, but Sarah never did. And to read her interview transcripts about the neck massages Welles gave her while she reclined on Herman's hospital bed is to go to a place no grandson should ever go.
3: (laughs) Uh, no, no, I gotta say you're picking out some uh, very uh, interesting moments. I I do. I was reading the transcript. I felt myself blushing. I was like, hey, hey, "Goma, what are you doing? Stop!" You know. And this, you know, this was thirty years later, and she's telling a story in the '70s to a, a, an interviewer. And I, I just read the transcript. Like, Goma, dude, I I don't want to read about this. Uh, and there was there was another there was another story that she told about like walking in on Herman and a secretary, where I and and it, this. Was never put in any other book. And I was just like, I, I, I have to use it, but this is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's pretty complicated guys, both of them. But, I, but mm-hmm. I love
1: the fact you point out, like, why is it so important to people how much of the credit he gets? But, of course, it is important to all of us. Like, he deserves more credit and he knew the deal going in. Orson Welles did have an enormous ego. And, of course, he wanted to have, he was like an auteur before we had the auteur theory, right? He wanted to be everything one says in Kane. And yet, Mank was the guy that said, listen, I came up with the story. I came up with the structure. I knew all this stuff about Hearst. All my journalism background, I poured into this. I wrote 99% of the dialogue or 98% of it. And he had this Great line. If he'd attended the Oscars, he would have said, I am very happy to accept this award in Mr. Wells' absence because the script is written in Mr. Wells' absence.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, Herman, I mean, it's interesting because he did. He made the deal. Like they, everybody who worked for Wells knew it was a one man band right. and it, that he got all the credit and this is going to be his premiere movie and everybody knows. But, but Herman made a lot of noise and Wells finally turned around and I think kind of brilliantly thought, okay, not only am I going to give you credit, I'll put your name first, right. you know, and I'll look magnanimous and the history will show that I gave credit to this right. You know, not nearly enough credit, according to my grandmother, but, you know, credit.
1: yeah, and, and for Joe, his greatest achievement, all about Eve. And as you point out, hey, that was really what Joe loved, which is the theater. So he can have this great love letter to the theater, but also savage indictment of cinema. I mean, Betty Davis is unbelievable. This is the part that I, I, I was stunned by, because I did not realize this. What makes it improbable, prob- of course, is that Addison, that's a character, I think, played by George Sanders, yeah, he's an if it dandy, as queer as the day is long, no more sexually attracted to Eve than he is to that bull. Boy- weevil it's curiously remarkable that it took a man as flamingly devoted to his own heterosexuality as joe manquist to create two such iconic gay characters caused it though addison and eve may be indeed eve is an almost passionately asexual figure enthralled not to sex or romance but to power and ambition still can anyone doubt that if the film were made today we'd get more than just the whiff joe gives us of eve's lesbianism I, I did not get that from watching All About Eve. So credit to you that you were able to, listen, you know the film, it's your family, et cetera. I was impressed you were able to find that stuff.
3: Well, yeah. I, no, I don't know. I, every time I've watched All About Eve, I'm like, it, that's, it, this is clearly what's going on. I mean, and the other thing that's going on, I think, is it's Joe's emotional autobiography. Right. Here is a story of a larger-than-life, wonderful, beloved, older artist, Margot Channing, uh, Betty Davis, and then the younger, colder, usurper ambition of Eve Harrington. And and Eve takes down Margot, much as I think Joe subconsciously thought he was taking Herman down. Of course, Joe denied this. It's not an original theory to me, but he, he said, no, it's got nothing to do with Herman. You know, I had nothing to do with, you know, Herman had nothing to do with the movie. It's odd that someone as devoted to psychoanalysis as Joe right. was completely refused to examine his own motivations for writing this beautiful, brilliant script.
1: Yeah, it's one of the all-time great scripts, and it's certainly still a brilliant movie all about Eve. The book is fantastic. It's called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait by Nick Davis. I'll close with this, because after I read this section, every single person is going to want to buy this book. Tom Mankiewicz, Joe's and Rose's second son, loved to tell a gloriously awkward story about the time he was at a Hollywood party in the early 1960s and came across Oscar Werner, the acclaimed Austrian actor. At the party, Werner was drunk and he took exception to someone calling him German. According to Tom, Werner snapped at this guy I'm not German, I'm Austrian. There was a big silence, and me being a big, kissy-faced 23-year-old kid, I said, you have to understand, to call an Austrian a German is a little bit like calling an Irishman an Englishman. They don't appreciate it. Oscar Werner was delighted, and asked Tom how he knew so much about Austrian resentments. Tom said that his mother had been Austrian, an actress, in fact. Werner asked her name, and when Tom told him, Werner's eyes lit up. The Stad Theater, 1935. Tom nodded proudly. Werner smiled thoughtfully, then said, When I first masturbated, it was to a picture of your mother. The room went silent. Tom stared at the man. If you live 50 lives, no one is ever going to tell you that. The only thing I could say he told me 40 years later was thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, and Tom, uh, Tom loved that story. Uh, and it is gloriously
1: awkward oh, it's so good competing with idiots Herman and Joe Manco it's a dual portrait buy the book September 14th and make sure you watch this outstanding documentary on the Met September 14th and 15th Nick Davis can't thank Once you enough Once Upon a Time
3: me. in Queens yes. thank you so much Adnan. it was great being here alright great stuff man that was awesome wow thank you that
1: was super yeah. it was. It's, it's always a big difference someone was joking to me when you actually read the book the guest is thrilled I'm
3: like well yeah of course you send me the book I'm going to read it <laughs> But you were also picking such really great, personal, weird things.
0: (laughs) Adnan, authors love you. What's up with this? You just have this connection with (laughs) authors, man. I mean, geez. We're talking six authors in three months, and every single guy loves me. I'm telling you, I just realized what the perfect recipe is if you ever meet an author. Read their book. They love it.
1: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually an unbelievable point. Like, how low a bar are we setting here? Like, most of these author interviews, two percent of people are actually reading the book. So I actually do the work of reading the book. Except Mark and Harris, they're like putty in my impressed. hands. Dude, that guy's awesome. <laughs> Except for Mark Harris, Mark Harris going kind of like, uh, your your description of Mark Harris is amazing. I was like, this book is so good. Philip Seymour Hoppin, Dustin right. Hoffman. He's like, yeah, I, mean, I know, like, I it's don't awesome. Know. What, what I'm amazing. I know. Yeah, like I know I crush.
0: <laughs> but everyone else,
1: man, you read that book and
0: they're like, that was amazing. Thank
1: you. Who knows? Maybe next time we'll have another author here on Cinephile. Thanks so much to Nick Davis, though. He was awesome, and thanks so much to all of you. Thanks to Chris Cody. By the way, Cody, going off to uh, another vacation, another family vacation. Yeah. Once you have a kid, this is what happens when you're off to Disney. How fired up are you for Disney?
0: I'm more fired up about Disney than I was about SeaWorld. I'm still feeling like my life—I just have no control over my life anymore, and my life is just—I <laughs> like I, I feel like an asshole now. Like my, I love my kid. She's excited about Disney, but— You know, I'm going to need a beach at some point. Like the next vacation I already told my wife is mine. I'm picking the next vacation after this.
1: You do start to wonder, like, hey, when do I get one for me? Because yeah. it's always for the kids. I'm like, hey, do I, do I really, like, Do I get one of these? You had your whole life, Chris. You had 30-plus years. Yeah. Now it's all about your little girl. Um, it's going to be a blast, though. You, your mom, your dad. It's going to be great. Uh, sit a file next week. We'll be coming to you, as always, next Thursday. Even though Chris is taking vacation, he's not missing an episode. Mm-hmm. The new film called Worth It stars two of my favorite actors, Michael Caton, Stanley Tucci. That's coming on Netflix. And also old movies. How about Out of Africa? Claire Atkins went to Africa. I saw it was on TCM Turner Classic Movies, 1985 Best Picture. Winner Robert Redford Meryl Streep will knock that as well. Plus, the wild card. Find out what that'll yeah, yeah, stay be. Stay tuned. Next you don't
0: know what it is because it's a wild we'll card. It wouldn't be a wild card if you knew what it was. Stay tuned.
1: We'll see you at the movies.